had the uh, I had the pleasure to uh, start this uh, series, and I have the, pri- the privilege to finish the series. Jeff was planned to be out today, um, coming back from vacation, so don't worry about that. Um, but I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray first of all because I'm I didn't get any sleep last night, maybe an hour. So hopefully that doesn't rub off on what I'm about to say. And there is some weighty. Um, there's some weighty material here, so let's pray and ask God to speak, and um, I will submit to him. God, I pray that. I pray your word speaks first and foremost. I thank you for the time that you and I had this week examining your word. Holy Spirit, I pray you speak, and I trust you for that. I pray our hearts are open, and that we thank you for just the book of Hebrews. I pray it has been... Um, I pray it's been life-changing for the many who have gone through this series, and it would continue to reap benefits in our lives and not return void. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, so this is the final installment of, um, of Hebrews. We'll begin some, some new things um, next week and what have, what have you. Um, you have your version app if you've downloaded it. Unfortunately, I don't think the slides or the scriptures in there. But it's uh, Hebrews 13. If you have a Bible, you have the YouVersion app, um, then you have it, right? So um, finishing the, this out, last week it was interesting. When you, when you read through chapter 12, um, doctrinally, doctrinally and theologically, it kind of ends where we ended last chapter. Like you think it could be done. And then he, uh, there's this chapter 13, or we have it as chapter 13, right? He decides to send these personal remarks or kind of— um, what seems like just a random bullet point of, of commands or instruction. And so we're going to go through that today. Some of it seems to fit easier or better with the whole of Hebrews. And some of it just is, it's biblical. It relates to what Paul writes, Peter writes, and all these other New Testament writers write. But um, may not at first glance seem like, how does that fit with Hebrews? Um, but I think the reality is, as we just walk through this book of explaining Jesus is greater, Jesus is greater as high priest, as the sacrifice, and all the things that we examined, um, and the covenant, and all these things like that. When you have a new covenant, or you have a covenant, right, a relationship agreement, there's usually some behaviors, or there's some things you live out as a result of that relationship covenant, right? So um, the easiest example for me is marriage. But before you get married, if, you, if you're married to your spouse, right, there's certain ways you act. But once that covenant is in place, the game changes. And so that's what I think this chapter does, is it really starts to talk about how do you live your life out in light of this new covenant, right? When Moses gave the old covenant, there was the law and there was all the things that allowed for the people to connect with God via the sacrificial system, which we've looked at. And then out of that, there were ways that you should behave given that commitment, right? So that's, that's the analogy that I come up with. That's what makes it work for me or fit best um, this chapter with the whole of the book. So there you have it. Um, Hebrews chapter 1, or thir- uh, chapter 13, starting in verse 1. It says, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters, and to for- do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality with, to angels without knowing it, right? So just hearing that might seem kind of obscure, like, what does that mean? Um, and I think this is where he's going. And again, some of this is not new, 
right? It's the same type of commands. It's the same lifestyle of following God from the very beginning. And that is to love one another. And he says this, keep on loving one another, right? That's a command as old as, as the Old Testament, right? But it hasn't been changed. But he's challenging him, continue to love one another and, and also show hospitality to strangers. And as I think about that, it really just shows the gamut that we love our inner circle and our friends and our brothers and sisters, but also to the other end of the spectrum, to those people who are strangers, those people we don't know, that we're called to show hospitality to them, that we're not limited to who we love based on our knowledge and our, our relationship with them. And as I was studying this and thinking about that, I thought about the, um, the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Definitely here was this guy who was walking across the road, saw the man who had been beaten, has no connection, wasn't part of his inner circle, but he stopped to take care of him, a stranger, showed him hospitality, bandaged him up, brought him to the inn, paid for his bills, said, I'll be back if there's more money to be paid, right? That is an example, I think, of what is being talked about here, that, that it's a spectrum. We love those who are part of our inner circle and part of the family of God, but, but on the other end of that spectrum, we also show hospitality, which is an incredible weapon for God, for good, that I think we still in our culture fail to utilize as we can. And so here's the spectrum. You love the people who are familiar and be hospitable to those who are unfamiliar. And that's what he's saying here. And that part about the angels. We know that Abraham, when um, he was approached by three people, one was the angel of God and two were two other angels. And he saw them from afar and, and put a feast on for them. And then he continued to meet with God, and the other two went off to deal with the country, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? But, but he showed hospitality to strangers. I don't, know if he, that's, I don't know if he knew that they were angels or not. Others in the Old Testament had Gideon um, had a time with some angels or an angel. And so, you know, I don't know what to make of that other than you never know who God sends in your path. And he wants to see how you're going to relate to them. And that's here as an encouragement and challenge for us. And he goes on to write this. Continue to remember those in prison as if you yourself, as if you together with them were in prison. And those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. Remember back in chapter 10, he says, hey, remember when you first made a decision to follow Jesus, how you suffered. You, you, you were glad to have your property confiscated. And you gladly, right, you gladly started to suffer for the name of Jesus. Right? So he's coming back and reminding them of what he had just written. Like, I know you guys have been through this. Some of you have been through this. So now you know, and it's easier for you to empathize with those who are still going through it. Because you've been through it. Or you've been threatened. This idea of solidarity. We are one together. And it's important for when you're going through hard times. I know sometimes we want to be alone so we can do our own thing, but I think deep down in our heart, we don't want to be alone, right? It's that idea of misery loves company because we want somebody to be with us as we're suffering. And as I think about that, there's been many times I've gone to Cuba and I brought teams there and we've always had a goal for the trip, right? So there's things to accomplish, but I've always told them the underlying goal is to go and encourage them and sit in solidarity, Right? It, it, um, and I've joked about this, right? The, it says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I say also with your glutes. Because we go there and we just sit with them and we let them know they're not alone. 
And that is worth its weight in gold. So they know, like, people outside of this country of Cuba, other believers know we're suffering. And so just making sure that they know we've gone through all these hoops, all these things we've had to do to get there legally and sit with you in this moment and play cards with you or dominoes or drink coffee and more coffee and excellent food and worship God. And they know they're not alone. And I see their spirits lifted, and then they're sad when we leave, but then the prayer is always, and next year as God wills. And so that's the challenge here. And I think about that too. From my previous church, we had a team that would come up to Elmwood and do worship um, one Sunday a month. And I remember being a part of that team and coming in and, and worshiping and, and preaching and leading worship at, um, at Elmwood and the encouragement of the inmates who would come. And, and I think I, the story of communion, this one guy comes up and I'm offering communion and he comes up and he has F-U-C-K-Y-O-U on his fingers, and he's coming up to take communion. And I just thought, wow, the grace of God is that good. And, and I, I didn't speak anything to him. I just I blessed him and served him communion. But it made me wonder, what, what is the story of his life? And just prayed a blessing quietly as he walked away. But, but we went. We went into prison. The times I played softball in prisons. That we go to places where people are hurting and literally imprisoned, or maybe they're spiritually or mentally imprisoned. And we walk into their world so they know they're not alone. Marriage. Marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed should be kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Don't know why that's in there. He didn't talk about that before. But it's nothing new. The blueprint for marriage goes all the way back to the first part of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2 and God's blueprint for marriage. One woman, one man, one lifetime. Grace will show up at the very end of this sermon. It should show up through and through as well. But the reality is God will judge. He's the one that set it up. We're the ones that are supposed to live it out. The marriage bed. Back in that culture, um, marriage wasn't held too highly. Especially the guys. It was okay in the culture, in the Roman culture, to have a mistress or two. Infidelity, what a big deal. That was the culture that they were living in. And here's God saying, no, I want you to keep this command and I want you to live out the original design in the context of your culture. That the marriage bed is protected and not promiscuous. And that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is for those who aren't married. Because chastity and fidelity were to be the norm, and it was anything but. Kind of sounds like today. You think in 2,000 years, it had gotten better. I think it's the same old, same old. You think back to those angels that Abraham had lunch with before they went to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
They weren't going there because the people were so greedy. They were going there because of the sexual immorality that existed in those two countries, and God had enough. Now his, his grace and his judgment are holding off while we live this out until we stand, I believe, stand face to face with him. What do we do? I know for me, week in and week out, I do not fail to pray a protection over my marriage for my wife, to honor her. When temptation comes up, I go straight to prayer. I sometimes even feel guilty of temptation that comes up because I want to honor her so much. And I want to set that example for my daughters of what it means to have a husband that, that, that protects. Doesn't mean I'm perfect. Doesn't mean that, that I blunder here and there on, on littler things. But I am guarded to pray and protect and seek God to help us week in and week out, every week, year in and year out. But there is grace there, and we'll come back to that. It says, keep your lives free from money and be content with what you have because God has said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Paul, writing to Timothy, said this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For I brought nothing into this world, and I can take nothing out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, we should be content with that. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And people who have gone after that have, have, have pricked themselves with all kinds of pains. And that's Paul writing to Timothy. Here's the writer of Hebrews saying the same thing. Keep your lives free from the love of money, which is a, a form of idolatry. But it's also a way of saying, and, and this is one of the things I pray against as well, that, that God, I need more money, I need money, I need money because my faith and trust in, lacks in you. And that's what he's saying here. And he's saying this in this context because these people at any moment, you, they could lose their job, their livelihoods, everything they have, and they have nothing but they have God. And if you have God equals everything, and God plus, I think sometimes equals nothing. That if we're trying to add to God is what I mean by that. And he's reminding them, if you have God alone, and remember, this whole book is about, is about remembering to the, the Old Testament. Forty years in the desert, they had manna every day. They had quail. Their shoes never wore out. Forty years. I just bought new running shoes on, was it Thursday? Friday. Because I had 300 miles on them. I don't know how many miles they had. Their sandals never wore out because they have a God who can provide. And again, you've heard this in my testimony. There was a 14-month period when I got to try out retirement. I was unemployed. Between my last church and inroads, right? And God provided and it was faith building. And that's what he's saying here. He said, cannot God provide? A buddy of mine named Brant has a, a saying that he says. He says, love God, not money. Trust God, not money. Love God, serve man. And by serving that, he means with good deeds. And I think about him here when I read this. So the writer goes on and says, so... We say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can more, mere mortals do to me? 
right? God is greater than what people can do to me. And even if I should suffer, which happens, right? And then we had that Hall of Fame chapter that we looked at, even if it costs you your life, but living in faith, knowing that the answer is coming. Jesus would say, don't fear the one who can destroy the body. Fear the one who can destroy both the body and the soul. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you and consider the outcome of the way of their life and imitate their faith. Right? And again, the context of where we've been, I think about this. He's saying, remember those, first of all, he's saying, remember those people that are ancients, the ancients of faith. And the outcome of their whole life, the totality of their lives, remember them, right? And he wrote about their lives. He, he, he wrote some memory card things in there. So like, oh yeah, I remember that part about Abraham. I remember that part about Isaac. I remember that part about Noah and Moses and the others. And then last week, right, the, the, the person that we were focused on was Jesus. Like fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, right? So he's, he's encouraging them. Remember Jesus and how he ran. And now he's bringing up a new set of leaders, and presumably these are the leaders that taught them the Word of God and either have died or at the very end of their lives, right? So he says, examine the outcome of their life. Look at the totality because we're called to start the race and complete it. And the hope is that these leaders who brought them the Word, that taught them the, the, the truth of the Word, that preached the gospel, that they had lived this out, whether they've died or they're pretty close to graduating to heaven. He's saying, remember the outcome of their lives who spoke the word of God to you. Imitate them. Right? So sometimes it's one thing to think about the, you know, people of old, like, yeah, but that was so long ago. And then Jesus, like, yes, he's awesome, but like, come on, he's Jesus and I'm not. And they're like, okay, then remember those people who are just a little bit ahead of you. Follow their lead. Follow their example. And that's what he's saying here. Then imitate their faith. If you have any questions on how to live it out, remember those who are just before you in the race. And I think about that. A couple of guys that that poured into my life. This one man's name was Milan Tillian. Um, He had a heart for global missions. If you're you're familiar with a gentleman by the name of um, Louis Bush, who coined the phrase 1040 window, This guy, Milan, who was at my last church, was Louis Bush's right-hand man for that whole time when when that was 1040 windows been developed. It's a part of the world where it's the least evangelized in in the globe. And this was the guy who was pouring into me. He was faithful to the very end. I had the privilege of doing his funeral service. Another is a gentleman by the name of Phil Chen. And I know he challenged me when I thought that we were going to be going and serving God uh, cross-culturally global, his challenge to me was cons- consistent. You need to be practicing evangelism and living out that life here because if you're not doing it here, you won't do it there. And he would challenge me on that. But he also, so many times he took me to lunch and he picked up the bill. <laughs> that was awesome. But just encouragement and calling, how are you doing? How's your family? How, you know, what's going on in ministry? And these people just built into me and now they're One's in glory and one's just waiting, not too far away. Who are the leaders in your lives that have paced you that are either recently gone or pretty close to uh, the finish line? Remember their stories. 
And then he goes on to say this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is a powerful statement. There's several things that are packed in here. One is the fact that Jesus is, is God. And Jesus was with God yesterday, today, and forever. That's a fancy way of saying eternal. He existed always before. He exists now. And he'll exist in the future. And then this other statement, it says, he's the same yesterday, today, and, and tomorrow. There's a big word, right? I've given you a couple big words in this series, right? Christology, the study of Jesus. Soteriology, the study of salvation. Right here. Ready for this one? Immutability. Means that it's the unchanging character of God. It's an attribute of God that says God does not change. Jesus Christ being God does not change. In Hebrews chapter 1, he's quoting from... Um, from Psalms 102, but it says, You founded the earth in the beginning, Lord, and the heavens are in your hands. They will perish, but you remain. You remain because you've always been. In Malachi, it says, I, the Lord, do not change. And James would write that every perfect gift comes from above, our Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And this phrase we hear today, God is still speaking. You are darn right God is still speaking, but he's speaking the same thing he has said from the very beginning. Regardless of the culture, God still speaks the truth. And he's speaking today. He's trying to make it as known today as he did before. And God will still speak into the future. But what he says and what is true does not change. Whether our culture wants to accept that or not, like the culture of that day, that's up to the culture, and they have to stand and give an account. But God is the same. Gracious, loving, unchanging, merciful, holy, just, loving, all the attributes of God from the very get-go of a person who does not have a beginning. But, oh, life's harder now, so I'm going to water it down. He's never going to say that. What he does is he gives us the Holy Spirit and he empowers us to be righteous because of what he's done. And that's the whole of the book of Hebrews. But God doesn't change. And then here comes a familiar warning that we've heard through this whole series. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. Not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle, the old, have no right to eat. Right? He's, right here he's encapsulating what he's been writing the whole time. He looks, something has changed significantly. And because of what's happened, if you believe in faith, you, as a Christ follower, have a right to this table that those who have either rejected or refused to believe have no right sad, right? And then that's part of our purpose is to let people know that they can come to the banquet table. There's a table in heaven that's being set and waiting for that day when we can all gather around it. But here, again, he's back to what he's been talking about. That there's a better covenant with a better altar, a better priesthood, a better sacrifice, and a better meal. And so he's, in, he's encouraging them. He's challenging them again. Keep in step with the decisions you've made to follow Jesus. 
You see, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies, the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so also Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking forward to a city that is to come. Right? That's what we've been looking at. And this challenge here is, hey, look, there's a new sacrifice that's been in place, and that's Jesus. And we've gone and we've identified with him. Stay in that identity. Don't shrink back. Don't shrink back to whatever humanistic things that you believed in before. Don't, don't go back to some false religion. And certainly don't go back to something that is decaying and rotting away because the new has come. And so he challenges them. Speaking a language that they would understand because they're still so familiar with the sacrificial system. And he's saying, if you haven't heard it in what I've written so far, hear it now, right? This was the sacrifice of all times outside the city gate. It was Jesus on the cross, three days, raised again. That's what we believe. And so we don't. We don't hold on to this world. We hold on loosely. Like chapter 11, of all those people who looked forward to that same um, exhortation applies to, to us today. You see, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, open profess, openly professing his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for such is the sacrifice that God is pleased with. Right? So there's a, there's a, new, um, there's a new covenant in place, Right? There's a new way of, of worshiping, so to speak, right? But this is the worship that is connected to the work of the cross, right? We give praise to God. We worship him together. We sing of his praise to other people, right? We tell of who Jesus is and what he's done in our lives. And we continue, we continue to love one another and to show hospitality to those who don't know him, who is our neighbor, who's our inner circle. That's what he's talking about. By loving such people, that, that gives praise and honor to God. That's what we were talking here with the little kids, right? We serve, and, and what does that do? That gives glory and honor to God. And with that, he's pleased. He's pleased when we worship him, when we give him thanks, when we speak of his name to others, and when we do work in his name. Those are the sacrifices he's pleased with because it brings him glory and honor. And then the writer writes this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, to their authority. They keep watch over you as those who must and will give an account. Do this so their work will be a joy and not a burden. For that will be of no Zero, nada, none, benefit to you. So there's two admonitions that go to the people here. To obey and to submit. And this is in no way meant to be a dictatorial type of command. To obey means to conform one's actions to and put confidence in. And that's what it means to obey here. And submit. A readiness to comply to these leaders. 
those leaders who keep watch. They set doctrinal integrity, and they should be living it out so it's not hypocritical. And they, as leaders, we as leaders, myself as a leader, have to give an account as a leader that a sheep does not. And you have to hear me on this. That scares, and I can't say the word I want to say, that scares the bajiggity out of me. That has been a, a, a line for me to toe from the very beginning when I stepped into this and followed Jesus to be a leader. Because I know someday I'm going to have to stand up before him and explain my actions, good and bad. That's my role. That's the role of the other leaders that are here. And I, I, I know them. I know them as people who have that same holy fear. And I don't know how this plays out in the long run, but trust me, when I make my mistakes, I, I try and settle the accounts on this side of, the, of eternity because I don't want to deal with it on that side. And I hope that counts. I have a prayer I pray every week, not only protecting my family and my, and my marriage, but I pray th three things. God, help me to be faithful, fruitful, and finish well. And it's in line with this and also the command that says those who teach will also be under a strict judgment. I'll take that lightly. Then the other half of the verse, it shifts the focus to the people who are not leaders. Or back at that. Or it's kind of like the reality of the two worlds coming together. He says, do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden. For that will be of no benefit to you. See, it benefits you. It also costs us. Because the reality is, that it says not a burden. It, this, it can be translated not groaning or sighing. Not groaning or sighing because of the, of the circumstance that leaders work in when this is not being lived out. You see, the reality of this is that there's an emotional burden that goes on, and those leaders then, they sigh and they groan because of when this isn't happening as it should. And the reality is that it will be of no benefit to you since ministry is diminished by undue emotional stress. I will tell you that when this is not working properly, your leaders go under an emotional distress, and we felt it, and it does. It hampers us. It's hard to explain unless you've been there or are there right now. And so, but we try and stay faithful. We try and still to lead in light of this, praying for this, working with people, listening, and, and everything that's going on. This is a tough verse. When I, when I knew I was preaching these two Sundays, I knew this verse existed. I knew it was in chapter 13. I'm like, really? I Maybe that's why I didn't sleep last night. But please hear the grace in this, right? We're in this together. To be bound by love, covered by grace. If I've been dictatorial, like a dictator to you, I ask for your forgiveness. I'm a man. I fall short, but I know my heart is right. And that's what the writer says next. He says, hey, look, pray for me. As I know you pray for your leaders, just pray. He says, we are sure that we have a clear conscience and we desire to live honorably in every way. And I can say that about the leaders of Cedars. 
doesn't mean perfect, desire. He says, I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. It's the heart of a pastor wanting to be with his people. So I, I want to come back to you. I want to reconnect with you. I'm coming. Then he turns the corner to this amazing benediction. It says, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of all the sheep, equip you every, with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That benediction just wraps up the whole book of Hebrews. As we love one another as those who have come and submitted to Jesus Christ, it is describing here that we be equipped, right? There's that key word for cedars again. In Christ to do everything that would please him, from loving one another to being hospitable, following the God of peace. It says, brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of ex- exhortation, for in fact, I've written to you quite briefly. <laughs> Can you imagine if he had the time to write the full thesis? We'd be here forever. Just kidding. But he says, but I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released, and if he arrives soon, I'll come with him. Because your leaders want to connect with you. The church wants to be together. He wants to come back and see how they're doing and encourage them in the midst of the suffering that they're going through. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. And those from Italy send their greetings. I guess they're off on vacation to Rome. And here's the bottom line verse. Grace be with you all. I love that he finishes this book with this line, grace, because that's what it takes. It was born out of the grace of God that this cross even existed. And then the author and perfecter of our faith, he was the example, the embodiment of grace. God in the flesh showing us what grace looks like. How grace acts, how grace speaks, how it responds, how it lives, how it perseveres. Everything in this book comes right here. It's the grace of God. It's core to who he is. It's central to the work that he provides. And it's the sustaining grace that powers us to continue to run the race that we've called to run. And it's the grace that God gives that's a gift to bear fruit in the lives of other people. And God, I pray your grace falling upon us continually. God, I thank you for that grace. I thank you that that grace bears all things. We call it love. God, I thank you for the grace of God. Because without it, I could not be here. God, I pray for those who are in the midst here that have been in the study and in the sermon series. Those on the fence, they're still trying to make a decision. God, those on the fence who are thinking about going back and giving it all away. God, I pray, I pray, I pray that you reach those who still are struggling. And for those of us that are running, God, empower us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.